Okay, today's topics, Christianity and environmentalism. And we're going to begin by looking at some of the first words out of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Uh, let's, let's read these together. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And jumping into the next chapter, we see this other phrase. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. What Genesis is doing is giving us the foundational story that makes sense of our story, a story that, that shapes our worldview, and it's a worldview that is comprehensive. It's covering a lot of different things, and that might feel overwhelming, uh, but it should also teach us about the way we think and the way we act. And as such, we are able to explore the topics of Christianity and environmentalism today. But, but really, do we need to do this? Like, like, how urgent is this talk? Like, uh, how necessary is this message? The very word environmentalism will likely surface for you uh, a bunch of different starting points. And a lot of us have probably a different one than, than the next person. And over the last few weeks, I, I became aware of this as I was explaining to people the topic we were heading into. And the responses from others towards me ranged from everything from the, the eye roll and the, like, seriously, like, who cares? All the way to finally, finally, it's about time. So I want to begin by making a few observations. First, I am observing my own hypocrisy when it comes to this subject. And as with many things, when you go to pre present a message from the Bible about a specific topic, you're confronted with how it relates to you and your own life as a communicator. And you're, you're often asking, like, like do, am I practicing what I, what I preach here? Uh, a lot of time I feel like, like a walking contradiction. And like with this subject, it's like, on the one hand, I, I hate things like litter. But on the other, I really don't enjoy drinking my root beer out of a paper straw. So, so what do I do with this, especially as it comes to this message today? And admittedly, a lot of the content today has challenged me on several levels, which ought to tell you that currently, I'm bringing much of this from a place of fresh discovery, investigation, and appreciation. So let me tell you something. I, I have yet to figure out specifically what this message means for my life practically. And what I want to do is not so much give you some specific steps that I'm taking, but, but explain to you the, the variables that I am weighing in this conversation. Secondly, I want to observe uh, the, the world we live in. Uh, I'm a, I'm perhaps annoyingly not going to give us a how-to today, uh, but more of a why-to, examining the, the world we live in and the worldview that we, we hold. And so uh, let's make a few observations about the state of our planet before we get going too far. Uh, at the time of this message, we've just come out of the 2021 G20 Summit in Rome. 
or the group of 20 countries, which represent more than three quarters of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, had been looking for common ground and, and solid commitments on how to reduce emissions. And, and right now, uh, even as we record this right now, immediately following the G20 was the United Nations Global Warming Conference, which is underway and will yet uh, to be concluded later this week, uh, COP26 which is taking place in Scotland. And right there, over 100 heads of state, including our own from the country of Canada, and thousands of diplomats from around the globe are meeting to talk about the present and the future of the earth. So this involves discussions about oil, gas, coal, deadly heat waves, water shortages, crop failures, carbon tax, deforestation, and ecosystem collapse, to name a few which has led youth climate activists such as Greta Thunberg and Vanessa Nakate, who, uh, you know, they issued an open letter to the media just as the G20 was wrapping up, stressing that time is running out and any solution must provide justice to the people most affected by climate change and that the biggest polluters often hide behind incomplete statistics about their true emissions. And this, this uh, type of language reflects more than just a few activists. This is, this is part of a larger movement. Which leads me to a third observation, that the youngest among us are the ones that seem to have been gripped by environmental concerns perhaps more than any other generation in comparison. There's a growing feeling of being threatened by climate change and simultaneously being disillusioned by authority. For the moment we are in right now, climate change is one of the biggest issues for the younger generations with many studies showing that more than four in five Gen Z and millennials would say they are worried about climate change. Consider this conclusion from an article from a few weeks ago in Psychology Today. Maybe it's the wildfires or the hurricanes or the changes to the plants and animals that surround us, but our children are feeling the impact of the climate emergency. Our children do not trust us nor their government, to secure them a future that is safe. While politicians debate, our kids obsess. Most telling, on every dimension of trust in authority figures and confidence that those in power were taking this issue seriously, a majority of young people express serious doubts that those with the power to address the climate emergency were willing or able to do so. It is this sense of powerlessness that I believe is fueling the mental health crisis we see around us. And the mental health side of it actually is a really important piece to all of this. Most of us are aware of the increased rates of anxiety and depression, and there's a specific type of condition that is now being recognized as eco-anxiety. The UK uh, media and news group The Guardian posted an article about this just last month, writing this, increasing levels of eco-anxiety which is the chronic fear of environmental doom, were likely to be underestimated and damaging to many in the long term. Although not yet considered to be a diagnosable condition, recognition of eco-anxiety and its complex psychological effects was increasing, as was its disproportionate impact on children and young people. So for me as a millennial, this is just some of what I am seeing as I'm following Jesus in a bit of a chaotic time. And this is difficult for me because the worldview that I believe is both good and true is often characterized as part of the problem. Some of how Christians have interacted or not interacted with environmentalism has contributed to the narrative that the church is dismissive, destructive, and even anti-intellectual. All of which I would say are not things that following Jesus is about. 
I don't like the accusations that we have a blind faith that hides from modern learning. Uh, in, the, in the early 1990s, Mark Knoll wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, in which he concluded that the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there's not much of an evangelical mind. Going on to say, white evangelicals appear as the group most easily captive to conspiratorial nonsense, in greater panic about their political opponents, or as most aggressively anti-intellectual. Now, this may not be true about yourself or, or other Christians that you know, but I think there's enough data to suggest that he's not entirely wrong, especially when we consider the subject matter today. See, what, I, what I've noticed in myself and what I've seen in others in the church is that the belief that if we buy into the activist agenda to save the planet, then we're at odds with what, some of what it means to be a Christian. As a recent article in The Atlantic uh, so helpfully pointed out about the U.S., but I think it's increasingly true about Canada, much of what is distinctive about American evangelicalism has become antithetical to authentic Christianity. What we're dealing with, not in all cases, of course, but in far too many, is political identity and cultural anxieties, anti-intellectualism, and ethnic nationalism, resentments and grievances, all dressed up as Christianity. Climate activist and author Anna Jean Joyner, whose father is the pastor of a megachurch in the southern United States, writes that she grew up lumping environmentalists in with hippies and liberals and all the other people who were probably going to hell. Now, there's a lot we could discuss just from that statement alone, but, but her conclusions uh, match a lot of other people's conclusions. And we need to realize that this is the perception that some myself included at some times in my life, have about the relationship between Christianity and environmentalism. But this hasn't been every Christian, and I was stunned to discover this next quote in my preparation for this talk. Listen to this. The growing possibility of destroying ourselves and the world with our own neglect and excess is tragic and very real. Now you might ask, well, what's stunning about that? It's, what's stunning is not what it says. What's stunning is who said it and when they said it. That was Billy Graham, one of the most famous Christians writing this in 1983, like six years before I was born. So suffice it to say, for me, I'm realizing how challenging it is to talk about this, but also how much is at stake in examining scripture, especially the very first book of the Bible, to see if we're aligned with the way that God designed the world from the start and the intention he has for people in it. But as we do this, I think we will have a filter to do some quality control on our interaction as Jesus followers with environmentalism. Ultimately, what I hope we will consider today is that an act of care for the earth is an act of love for God and that good stewardship is consistent with authentic discipleship. And I'm personally convinced of this for three reasons, which is just gonna inform the rest of our time together. Number one, as a follower of Jesus, I believe that the cosmos is God's masterpiece. So we've already seen in Genesis that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the rest of the Bible frequently reminds us of all of this. For example, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. 
Or Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God owns the universe and the earth is part of that. So my kids are, are currently in preschool and kindergarten and they, they bring home all these crafts and artwork like, like a lot, and uh, some of which, uh, you know, they're excited to show me, and including pieces like this one, right? So, so my three-year-old brings this home. I have no idea what's going on here. Like, is this pumpkin man coming out of the pumpkin patch chasing somebody? I, I don't know what's going on here. But, but imagine if I were to look at my three-year-old when he, when he shows me this, you know, wide-eyed and smiling. Now imagine if I were to, in front of him, crumple it up tear it in half, throw it aside, not comment on it at all. I wouldn't do that. You, think I, you would think I was a terrible parent for doing that. And, and the reason for that is it's never appropriate to be rude about somebody's artwork in the presence of the artist. We wouldn't do this with, with our kids. We wouldn't do this with any other artist. So this is getting me to think about my relationship with nature. The artist is in the room. So how ought I to treat his artwork? The artwork should prompt us not to destruction, but to worship. A friend of mine posted, uh, pointed me to a quote from another pastor uh, that drove this point home even more deeply. Take a look at this. I read the results of some Christian research recently about students who went through a period of doubt in their Christian faith. The decisive difference between those who came through that season with their faith intact and those who deconverted from faith was quite startling, really. Those who deconverted predominantly lived in cities, while those who found resolution to their doubts lived in contexts that were more rural. The conclusion of the researcher was that access to nature is a vital way in which we find our place in God's created order and are reminded of the vast and intricate wisdom of our creator. The lesson is not necessarily to move to the country. It's to make sure we regularly get out into God's creation. God's creation both humbles and assures us while man's creation can make us proud, insecure, or driven to compete. Remember what we read already earlier. God calls the physical world good in Genesis 1. And so we can't be overly spiritually minded and not neglect the physical goodness of what he has made. What God calls good, we should not call garbage. If we had gotten environmentalism right from the start, the church could have been leading the charge in care for the earth. Like, after all, that would make sense. We're, we claim to be in relationship with the one who made it all. It makes me wonder how many other things should Christians be leading the charge in as followers of Jesus because of what we believe about God, what we believe about people, and what we believe about the earth. Good stewardship of God's masterpiece is consistent with authentic discipleship because it leads us into wonder and into worship of the artist himself. A second reason uh, I'm, I'm considering, as a follower of Jesus, I believe that the earth is a gift from God that we are responsible for. Remember Genesis 1, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He then gives humanity its first career. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. These words work and keep express humanity's dominion as service, which enables the flourishing of those under our care. We're invited into this project by our creator, We've seen in Genesis 1 that we're created in God's image and so presumably our rule should be modeled after his 
rule. As Psalm 145 says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. The mandate in Genesis 1 is is why places like Proverbs 12 tell us that the righteous care for their animals. What God cares about, we should care about. And what God has given us, we should be grateful for. Like, shouldn't care for the earth be an act of gratitude? For example, we, we thank God for providing us food to eat uh, before mealtimes. Let's, let's not forget also what God gave to provide food for us. There, there's a common Jewish prayer uh, before meals which acknowledge this daily. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brought forth bread from the earth from the land, from the ground. So there's this acknowledgement of both the, the, the giver, the gift, and the vehicle he uses to provide for us. Again, as I look at the world in this way, it confronts me with the fact that God's priorities are not always my priorities. And how many other things does God value and love and care about that I simply do not? An act of care for the earth is an act of love for God and for others. Good stewardship is consistent with authentic discipleship. And a third reason that's convinced me of this is that as a follower of Jesus, I am embracing the world that Jesus is already in the process of restoring. As I've processed my relationship to the earth and considered my place in in a world that is debating climate change and the best way forward, I'm reminded of who I'm following. Look at what Colossians reminds us about Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And look at this, and in him all things hold together. There there are some who have said, well, it's all going to blow up anyways. Why bother caring about this? But what I'm asking is, if Jesus is holding all things together, why would I be okay with pulling things apart? Romans 8 has been a powerful chapter in my life for a lot of reasons, and in it we're given a description of some of the deepest realities of the universe. Check this out. For the creation, which is the Bible's word for nature, or the environment, or just the created order of things, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection from the dead, all work to defeat sin and death and evil in a way that doesn't just impact us personally as humanity, but impacts the world itself. Save the planet is not an original idea to environmental activists. It's the heartbeat of the creator who alone can do this. Just thinking about some of the recent global talks about the environment from this past week, 
uh, in his opening address at the UN Global Warming Conference, UN Secretary General Antonio uh, Guterres said, we're digging our own graves. And British Prime Minister Boris Johnson declared the world is strapped to a ticking doomsday device. In, in, in my preparation for this, I also found an interview from former governor and actor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, and you know, he was discussing environmentalism and he used a phrase from, from a movie series he's best known for, The Terminator. And if you're unfamiliar with this series, uh, there's, there's this recurring line in the movies where the heroes look ahead to prevent this certain doom of what's called Judgment Day. And they say, there is no fate but what we make. And, and Schwarzenegger himself employs that term and that phrase in discussing real life, not fiction, but like the present day. And, and, and thinking about pollution and saving the world. But what I'm seeing is that so much of the talk about environmentalism, and maybe you're seeing this too, it's fueled by fear. But for Jesus' followers, what we have is something more than fear. We have love. Love for the world that God loves. Loves for the world that Jesus will one day completely restore. We're not looking ahead to a dark future to motivate us towards good actions now. What we're looking forward to and looking ahead towards is places like Revelation 21, the renewal of all things, a new heaven, and yes, a new earth with the conviction that we can work to bring God's good future into our present, not just when it comes to relationship with nature, but relationships with people and relationship with God himself. The biblical end game is found in places like Revelation 21 or even in places like in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 11 or, or Habakkuk 2, which says, for the earth will be filled, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So knowing this, we don't just sit back and say, ah, God will fix it someday. Don't need to worry about it. He'll, he'll take care of it. We, we don't do that with other things we see that are broken in this world. We don't look at hungry people and say, ah, God will fix it one day. God will take care of them one day. We don't look at like, people stuck in addiction or slavery and go, ah, God will fix it one day. We don't do that with the pain of people. So why would we do that with the pain of our planet? Jesus didn't, and his followers shouldn't either. Good stewardship is consistent with authentic discipleship. Again, the Christian worldview is comprehensive and it touches on all of life. So let me end with two questions. We've covered a lot today and we've covered a lot in this Genesis series as a whole. Uh, so just two questions. What does faithfulness to Jesus look like where you are at right now? And second, what priority is God highlighting for you? Like, I'm under no illusion that this, is, that this topic today is the Holy Spirit's priority for every person. Like, myself personally, I'm still stuck in part four of this series about gender. But it may be a higher priority for some of us. And that God might be leading you into something yourself in relationship, not just to God, not just to people, but to the earth itself. And in it all, we're following Jesus with the passion to invest in what he teaches us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.